by him being open and owning things that have gone wrong, it, may, it enabled other people to be candid in their own appraisal of what had worked and what hadn't worked. Hey folks, welcome back to the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. This is Mark Devine. I am so stoked to be with you here today, and I very much appreciate your time and your attention, and I won't waste it. Before I introduce our guest, Bruce Daisley, let me remind you that my new book, Staring Down the Wolf, is due out first week of March, and we've got a wickedly cool pre-order going on. And I won't give you all the details, I'll let them be a surprise, but definitely worth your time checking them out at staringdownthewolf.com. Staringdownthewolf.com. If you want to learn more about the pre-orders, if you want to order in bulk, I'll do a Zen um, training with you. If you want to order a thousand books, if you're a corporate leader, then I'll come out and do a keynote for you. And uh, the content is really good, if I don't say so myself. Useful. That's the feedback I'm getting. Okay. Enough on that. You know how much I love plugging myself. Not. Our guest today, Bruce Daisley, uh, comes to us from London, where uh, we were just having a conversation about it being a little darker over there now post-Brexit. <laughs> the sun goes down a little <laughs> earlier and it's a little darker. <laughs> Bruce is um, a former uh, executive, software executive, worked for Google, YouTube, most recently Twitter, where I think he's transitioning out. He's got a new book, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy to Your Job. I can't wait to talk about this, Bruce. Thanks so much for being here on the Unveil Mind podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's good to talk to him in real life. Yeah, no kidding. You know, I have um, I have a good friend who went, was at Google, Vijnan. I can't pronounce his last name because it's one of those long Indian names, but he went there in the early days and grew with Google and, or uh, yeah, YouTube before Google acquired them. Um, just what an incredible experience to be with three iconic you know, tech companies that have had a global impact. I can't wait to talk a little bit about that. Very much so. That, that was very much my perspective. I felt um, all the time, you know, anytime when I was either in YouTube headquarters, when I was working at Google, or when I was uh, working at Twitter, I, you know, I was, I probably joined Twitter when there were 300 employees. So, um, you know, every step of the way, I was, incredibly grateful yeah. to have that window in something which all of this technology shapes our life more than than anything we could have ever conceived i think i know including the entrepreneurs you know who and the early you know the early folks who started that it's got to have been fascinating to see these technologies also go from you know from hero to villain in a lot of people's minds right what did that feel like you know when yeah I mean, I guess, you know, the one thing that was really clear when, when I started at YouTube or started at Twitter was that the way that the whole of the internet was perceived right. was very different to the way it is perceived now. I think, you know, our experience broadly with technology is that when we're assailed, when we're presented with new technology, we normally welcome it with open arms. Mm -hmm. And it's only a learned experience that we become a little bit more pessimistic and, and probably more realistic, you know. So any new technology that turns up, it, it might be from, you know, apps on our phone to uh, automated driving, whatever it might be. We generally regard this thing with like open-eyed wonder when it first arrives. Mm -hmm. And it's only afterwards that the consequences of these things start to become apparent. Well, that's true because, you know, we're humans, right? The technology is just technology. So you bring good humans and you get good things out of technology and you bring <laughs> bad actors and you get bad things with the technology. It really is, it's our influence on it, right? 
I think. Yeah, it magnifies human behavior. And I look at that with Twitter. Like Twitter has been like unbelievable uh, because it's given you a voice from one to many, but then it's even more unbelievable because the media has picked up a, on it as a valid mechanism for, you know, getting ideas out. And so you have this double magnification effect going on, you know, especially when someone has followers in the millions, right? It'd be okay with me if they were just influencing their millions, but if the media picks up on it and magnifies that to hundreds of millions, now you've got this like vast sea change in awareness and it may not, you know, like I said, it could be good or bad depending upon. Absolutely. I mean, you know, but let's, I, I I can't help but be in in awe of how these technologies have transformed some of the societal systems, right. the hierarchies that we used to have. So I was chatting to a you know a thinker, a big thinker last week, and he's only route to getting his big ideas out to the world used to be to publish books, right. and now he's got a YouTube channel with five million subscribers. And this guy's a philosopher, <laughs> wow. so you know, imagine that a philosopher reaching a global audience of five million people. In addition, probably most of us can't help but be awed to to a greater lesser extent in the achievements of Greta Thunberg mm-hmm. and, and Greta Thunberg, the youngest ever uh, winner of, of Time Person of the Year. She's really just in a way that I, th- I don't think any of us could ever have imagined has lit the world alight, a 16-year-old, um, just thinking about the unarguable consequences of man's actions on the environment that we're in and social media has helped propel her to that stage because the old way it would have worked is that she would have got a a small feature on NBC and she would have had three minutes and then you know maybe in six months time people would have said should we go back to no we feel like we've done that and and the window that we used to give was largely based on the curation Mm -hmm. And now I think, you know, it's it's impossible not to be awed by the way that that curation has been displaced. And of course, that inevitably brings downsides as well as, as upsides. Right. But, you know, we need to take in the world as, as it is in front of us now rather than be, I think, uh, nostalgic about the way it was before. No, I agree. I, I think it's got tremendous, tremendous positive benefits you know and 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 a lot of this stuff is still yet to be seen because it's kind of hidden and one of them is the fact that greta wouldn't have even had this opportunity uh pre-google or youtube to express herself at 16 through the power of of the twitterverse and 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 media because she wouldn't have had the awareness that she has right now because she wouldn't have had access to global information at her fingertips so it really is a sea change in how human beings receive information, disseminate information. It's changing consciousness very rapidly, way faster than social scientists, you know, can study it or economists can understand what's going on. I mean, everything is network effect and chaos theory and Gaia theory, and everyone's still trying to live in this linear kind of, you know, old paradigm or try to understand things from that old paradigm. And that's why it's so you know, so challenging right now. Very much so. And I think, you know, the critical thing is that we we must be careful not bringing our own value judgments into whether we think something is good or bad. So, you know, we're, we're just entering into the, the primaries and the, the election now. And, you know, it's inevitable that any of us, whether whoever we, we support in any election or any, any situation, we often bring our own perspective right. on things. And we might say, oh, well, this politician's using technology for good this politicians using technology for bad and in fact you know across the whole spectrum we've seen that the ability for 
on the democratic side, the ability for grassroots mm-hmm. campaigns to exist without big money is un- yeah. unparalleled with times before. The president has used the the benefits mm-hmm. of social media to disintermediate the people who previously may have held control over the right. opinion form. And I think all of us, whether we support uh, whatever political party we support or whether we're just championing green rights like Greta, I think it's inevitable that any politician in the future and any leader, any influencer in the future will be someone who takes in the opportunity afforded by these new forms of communication rather than probably sort of adopt a a more Luddite, reactionary, resistant approach. We need to embrace new technology and hopefully use it for good. I agree. And I see that in all the calls to like break up, you know, Facebook and Google and, you know, the regulatory pressure could really be damaging to free expression and to entrepreneurial growth, I think. So anytime, you know, to me, I'm more of a hands government, you know, keep your hands off. I'm a pretty autonomous human being. And so I, I shackle against, or I, I kind of push back against the, uh, the shackling of society through more and more government, more and more regulatory burden. And it just seems inevitably like this unstoppable train, but, um, you know, I think entrepreneurs are the answer. Right? Yeah, and I think back look, and changing things. So stay way ahead of them. <laughs> yeah, and and one of the challenges is, you know, it's very easy. Beware simple answers to complicated problems, right? So, you know, if someone says to you, "Oh, here's what we need to do. We need to regulate." And, you know, by all means, I'm not sort of ruling out regulation, but I think the, the next the next part of that discussion needs to be what the regulation looks like. Because certainly from being at the, 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 the cold face, being at the front end of these things, it's actually, you know, these people, people who are building these products have got the most formidable intellect, the brightest people you've ever met in your life. And quite often they struggle with the precision of how how to to do something that is positive right. for the end user of the product that doesn't have unintended right. consequences along the way so let's kind of shift focus and talk about you as a um, as a growing leader like where, where are you from where'd you grow up what were your influences and how, how did you get into big tech leadership and and you know some of those early experiences yeah, so um, I'm from Birmingham, which is the second biggest city in the country. Blue collar parents, you know, my dad was a uh, in construction. My my mother worked in um, chocolate manufacturing. So you know, we um, I sort of came from working class uh, background in in the UK, and um, I was first member of my family to go to college. So um, so yeah, so uh, and I think. Interestingly, sort of, you know, that helped shape my opinion of of life because, like a lot of people, I think uh, I had to work my way through college. I had to to work my way through uh, my further education. And so it sort of shaped my perspective because always I was really clear. You often do a a lot of jobs there for short periods of time, but it was pretty clear when I used to go into jobs whether there was a good workplace Mm -hmm. culture whether there was a bad workplace culture, you'd go into environments and it would immediately present itself to you. Okay, this is a really fun place. I'm looking forward to working here. Or, you know, you'd be uh, immediately reminded, right, okay, this is a hostile place. There's no trust. People are, um, 
you know they're out to get they're out to look after themselves but no one else and and so these things became really clear to you it's fascinating you know, and i think that started yeah, my fascination well, one thing that kind of popped in my head while you're talking is you know back in the old days 30 20 30 years ago where people used to stay in one job or you know two to three jobs for their entire career they didn't really have that exposure to all these different workplace cultures and and good and bad and the ugly and so they, they're kind of like cooked like a frog to think that, oh, this is just the way things are. But now, you know, the, the average length of stay is like 18 months to two years. I mean, it's rare you see someone stay for long periods of time. And so you get all this little exposure and you can enter into a workplace after five or six years or eight years of that, you can be like pretty sensitive to positive energy in the workplace, flexibility, all the things that are going to make you thrive. And if it's not there, you're just going to be like, no, either you're going to recognize it right up front or you're just you know, you're only going to be there for a couple of weeks and be gone. Yeah. And, and I think that's it. It's why the companies that seem to crack the formula that, that build an ability to, to have positive, well-motivated workforces, they seem to be, well, rare, but also the places where workers want to stay, where where you, they be, they do become genuine destination employers, and I think one of the challenges that we've witnessed over the last few years is that recognizing that these things are like the yeah, the secret right. sauce, the the magic elixir. A lot of companies have tried to present their own yeah. culture as somehow magical, and they've used culture as a marketing mm -hmm. device in a way that it certainly didn't used yeah, to be yeah. twenty years ago. Well, I think it was a famous management guru. I wish I remembered either. Collins or Peters said, culture eats strategy. And um, I think that's true in a yeah. sense, even though <clears throat> I prefer to think they're all, you know, co-arise, strategy, culture, and operational, you know, tactics co-arise, right? So one doesn't eat the other, but if you don't have strength in all three, then you're going to, you know, you're on a one-legged stool or two-legged stool. So culture is really important. And, and one of the things I've, as a business leader, I found is culture kind of develops itself, right? <laughs> if you don't do anything, culture will define itself because it is what it is. But what are some of the things that you've seen uh, companies that you work for do to kind of nudge culture in a certain direction, in a positive direction? Well, uh, yeah, I think, you know, firstly, the first thing is an awareness of it. And certainly I've worked in environments where there's maybe been a mistake at times thinking that culture and benefits are the mm -hmm. same things. So, you know, very often we can we can find ourselves looking at someone else's workplace environment and be, and find ourselves thinking, I wish I worked there. They've got uh, they've got subsidized cycles. They've got, you know, free smoothies. They provide all these benefits. And we, we find ourselves looking at that thinking, I wish I worked there. It must be a wonderful place to work. And paradoxically, what you can find in those environments is there's such, a, such an absence of autonomy or there's such an absence of the things that we, we genuinely find rewarding about our jobs that we can end up in a state of I sometimes call it affluenza, where we've got loads of material wealth and yet we feel unhappy. And affluenza is increasingly a trait of, of modern existence, you know, us feeling unhappy despite all of these good things that are happening to us. And so that's one of the critical things. Often we can find that um, workplaces might have those things. Generally, the, the workplaces that seem to have a good workplace culture uh, have often have a combination of two ingredients. And these are the things that I wanted to 
I wanted to um, capture. So when I wrote my book, I sort of I saw it as almost like a cookbook for how any leader could use all of the science that's been done to construct these good working environments for themselves. And so these the two critical elements that the business psychologists have captured that seem to create a good culture are a combination of something called psychological mm-hmm. safety and something called positive affect. Psychological safety is our ability to speak candidly to each other. It's our ability to tell our boss that his idea is a bad idea, or it's our, it's our ability to tell our co-workers that we, uh, we feel unsure about her quality of work, or to tell just to be candid with each other, maybe it's a client relationship to speak honestly to a client saying, I'm not sure this will work. Psychological safety is a really elusive factor to build, but um, it seems to be immensely powerful when we can actually construct it. That's really challenging, by the way. We'll come back to that about how challenging that is to build. Yeah. And and the uh, and that's why I spent a lot of time actually trying to look at the environments where um, where good cultures have built this, and you know I observed it to your previous life. I observed it in the the UK special mm-hmm. forces. So um, this is like the elite military in the UK. I observed their tactics for for implementing it. I observed it in hospitals. So this this number of organizations that have really tried to systematize it and it's fascinating to see how they've set about systematizing something across a lot of people um the other element i mentioned was um the something called positive affect and i guess the fundamental thing about positive affect is it comes down to the question do you believe the decisions you make are influenced by the mood that you're in so maybe not you because maybe you believe that it's not you but as a child, did your mum make different decisions whether she was in a good mood or a bad mood? Or maybe you see this with your partner. Can your partner make some decisions sometimes and then other decisions other times? And positive affect seems to be a really critical element of the way that we we do our jobs, that we um, the mood we're in does strongly influence the job that we do. So you're suggesting the environment or the cultural environment is structured a certain way to so that there's positive energy and positive feedback loops <laughs> and psychological safety, then it's going to improve an individual's decision-making. The environment will have that effect on one's decision. To build. Yeah, that's right. And and these things are immensely difficult, yeah. as you mentioned, to build. So the special forces told me that one of the things that they set about doing is that after a day's um, exercise, a day's engagement, uh, when they almost, the the guy from the UK Special Forces who told me this said they we, they do it when they're still sweating in their in their gear and they'll sort of gather they've just finished you know whatever they were setting about doing they'll gather together and they'll immediately say okay uh, you know they'll make an immediate appraisal the leader will describe what he sees has happened today um, he'll describe the main major episodes that occurred on the field that day. And then he will lead by saying uh, what he felt he did wrong or what he was responsible for that didn't go to plan, what he was responsible for that did go to plan. And then he'll, he'll invite others to do the same. And he, he said to me, it was a critical component of that by him being open 
and owning things that had gone wrong, it may it enabled other people to be candid in their own appraisal of what had worked and what hadn't yeah. worked. And he said it's really important. We sort of need to model patterns of yeah. behavior. And that was their way of doing it. I love that. And that's something I've, I've written a lot about the de- the SEALs have, you know, process called the debrief. And um, it's more important even than the brief. The brief and, you know, getting out the door and making sure everyone knows what they're doing. Obviously, that's critical. But the learning happens in the debrief. And um, and it's very much like what you just described. I think all spec ops kind of have a similar process. But one of the keys is that it's very, and you alluded to this, but you didn't outright say it. It's very impersonal, meaning it's, you know, when the leaders or any individual is saying, hey, uh, I screwed up or this is what I saw you do that didn't, that had a, a negative effect on me or the team, it's really not about you know making someone else wrong. It's about learning. It's about learning for the whole team. Right. And so there's this kind of gestalt you know, kind of feeling to it. And there really is a great deal of respect even when there's the screw-ups. In fact, there's more respect when people screw up than people who just pretend that everything's perfect or, you know, that they were the ones that didn't do anything wrong, right? And that's what actually leads to a, a, you know, less trust when, you know, perfectionism or pretending that you're not perfect, right? So that I could see how that debrief, and this is so hard to do in corporations because everyone's running a thousand miles an hour. And a corporation, here's a good analogy, uh, I, I was just reading an article, this recent review about U.S. SOCOM, about you know what are some of the leadership breakdowns, what are some of the causes of leadership breakdowns that we've seen recently, you know, with the Eddie Gallagher thing and special forces, um, war crimes and whatnot. And um, yeah. they said, some of the troops said it's because the pace of operations have been so long and so relentless that the teams got away from doing their debriefs. After the ops, they were just way too tired, way too much to do to get their gear downloaded and cleaned up and ready for the next mission. They stopped doing the debrief. They just figured out we got this, you know, and that's when you started to see the breakdowns. Isn't that interesting? And in the corporate world, we're running so fast. It's almost like you're in combat constantly and nobody's taking time to do the debriefs or people in the the ragged culture (laughs) companies aren't taking time to do the debriefs. And I think I think that probably chimes with a lot of our own experience. We feel overwhelmed with the inputs, the the distractions that are coming at us, the next email, the next Slack message, the next meeting, and we're not taking time to reflect and we're not taking time to pause. It sort of strikes me when I was trying to get to the bottom of, of some of the ways that our brain operates. And um, I, I read a really fascinating thing, which was the a very simple sort of 101 model of how neuroscience, of how brains work. And um, neuroscientists have pretty much agreed that these three these three functions of cognition, these three functions that our brains operate. The first is called the executive attention network. And that's like the main part of the brain. It's what we're doing. You might be um, you, know, you might be driving or you might be typing an email. The executive attention network is, is running that activity. The second one is called the salience network. And and um, while we're while we're typing that email, the salience network is just keeping a, a lookout to see that we're in a safe environment, that nothing unpredictable is going to happen. But the third one is really interesting. So, you know, the, the first thing to, to point out is that neuroscience as a science is really only um brain scanning is only sort of 20 25 years old in fact there's um there's a, a lot of work it really sort of the millennium is where brain scans really became sophisticated and one of the things that we observed at that time was that that um that brains were were not necessarily stopping their activity when people 
um, stopped doing the, the main thing that they were focusing on. And uh, scientists w- tried to understand this. And they, they ascribed what was going on to these moments of boredom. They ascribed the name, they called it uh, the default mode. And their feeling was that this sort of, when we're not actually doing something, this default mode, this this almost screensaver in the brain came up um, that sort of kept us cognitively occupied, it seemed, but we, it wasn't quite evident what we were doing. Anyway, the strange thing is this default mode, the, the experience that most of us would have of it is that we're in a state of boredom or unfocused or with, with, you know, you get, you sort of, you get in and you just, you just want to sit and stare for, for 30 seconds. The strange thing is that most of us, when we describe a time that we have our best creative ideas, we'll often be in a time when um, when we're in this default mode. And so my favourite example of it is the the esteemed writer Aaron Sorkin. He wrote sort of Moneyball, he wrote The Social Network, he wrote The West Wing. Um, he he realised he was having all his best ideas, not when he was in a state of frowning concentration, mm-hmm. but when he was in the shower. He says, uh, he says he had a shower installed in the corner of his office and he has six to eight showers a day. <laughs> that's fascinating that's a, because... Pretty clean writer. Right? That's awesome. Right. <laughs> right. But there's, there's just a good reminder there that, our, that, you know, we might be in a zone of constant activity that we, we might believe that we need to find productivity mm-hmm. hacks. And um, in fact, far from it, quite often we're in... Uh, we need to understand that our brain needs these breathing spaces. It needs time to sort of to relax into ideas more than we might imagine. Oh, I mean, I 100% agree and have experienced that um, as a martial artist. I've been a martial artist since 1981, I think, and um, or 85, actually, whatever, it doesn't matter. And one of the big outcomes of that type of training is, you know, expressed in the yin yang symbol and the yin yang symbol is simply the expression of action versus uh, non-action or effort versus surrender you know the male versus you know masculine versus feminine energy and the more you know when you start a martial art especially a very physical one it's all yang it's all active and then i was fortunate enough to get into a martial art that included zen training and so more and more advanced i got the more and more time i found myself you know drawn to sit on the bench until that became a daily practice And it was that time on the bench and just in that yin receptivity mode that all of my insights, I could say, just to mirror what you were saying, came from. And it literally changed the course of my life. That's what led me into the SEAL teams. And it's a big part of what I teach, that you've got to spend, you don't have to spend equal magnitudes of time in each, but give each equal attention, right? You have to give attention to non-doing and the yin. And that is whether it's taking a shower, taking a walk in nature, laying down and just taking a nap, uh, box breathing. You know, we have all sorts of little drills to guide people to that. And you probably have a bunch of them in your book. And then when you come back and start performing again, you're going to be that much more relaxed and spontaneous and and have all sorts of energy as well. So it, it improves both sides of the equation, right? Yeah. I mean, I saw something recently and, and forgive this impertinent but that said you know almost at times we should turn off our podcast we should turn off our music we should you know we should almost have little moments where we're not putting stimulus in exactly to your point because you know the strange thing about it is is that it can feel frustrating that even if we know this is meant to be something that we Mm do because there's no immediate return path there's there's no immediate reward 
we can sit there thinking, what am I doing this for? And However, there does seem to be some upside in just allowing that clarity of thought that comes. Mm-hmm. What I found is that that's great to do, you know, several times a day. Eventually, it becomes almost a nearly simultaneous thing where you're able to shift between default mode and executive function and also be more aware of the salient network as it's scanning and looking and you know receiving information. But then also um, to, to go deeper and from even more than to have big chunks of time um, so that you literally stay in the yin, you know, and stay in that, in that, um, that default mode. And those are in the form of like meditation retreats or time in nature. Yeah. In fact, I'm heading off today to go on an eight day meditation retreat up in the redwoods and I'm super looking forward to it because I've been charging hard for the wow. last, you know, six to eight and, months. And talk me through it. So do you get, do you get a moment each night to, because I guess most of us would have separation anxiety from our technology. Mm-hmm. Do, is there, is that a deliberately, talk me through what happens. Do, do, are you allowed to connect or is that, um, isn't that not invited? It's not invited. You're not, you know, this particular retreat has both an educational aspect as well as, you know, lot, tons and tons of meditation. So probably like six hours of, of meditation, seated meditation a day combined with maybe four hours of uh, discussion and stuff like that. And it's not a silent retreat, although I'm doing one of those in September, a silent meditation retreat in nature. I try to do two of these a year, kind of the bookend first and third quarter. And uh, so, the, but Here's the thing is when you, you know, as soon as you drop in, it really takes about 24 hours, Bruce, to, to, to settle everything down. And during the 24 hours, you're going to have some latent kind of like urges, right? The, the craving to pick up the phone, check your email, do all that kind of stuff. And then it just starts to settle down, right? Because you're in this environment, you're doing mm-hmm. the meditation, and then you just generally, you'll just set the phone away. There are some retreats where they say, check your phone in. I've done that plenty of times. One last year where they wouldn't let us have our phone. So for seven days, you know, after the first 24 hours, you just forget about it. It's quite liberating, actually. Yeah. And, um, and then you just, you know, that stops becoming your constant addictive pattern, right? To think that yeah, you have to, have to have to be in touch or have to pick up that. And well, that's right. What's going on. And, and I think we catastrophize, don't we? Because, sure. you know, we, we immediately believe, but what if something terrible happens? Now, you know, there, there, used to, there was millennia where, the, you know, there was no device there. And if, if something terrible happens in the very unlikely event, there's a way for people yeah, to get in touch yeah, with you, no doubt. And, and the irony That's is, right. you know, when you pick up that phone, like at the, the one I did last year where I could not bring my phone and I got it out of the lock bin at the end of this glorious retreat where we did unbelievable work for um, seven, eight days. And, um, you know, I was kind of like excited to see what happened. Right. And I went through, you know, a couple hundred emails and it was all just junk. I'm like, most, oh. most things had resolved themselves. I was being infoed on stuff that I, you know, I kind of figured was going to happen anyways. And, um, it was kind of disappointing actually. It was like, that's what I was. <laughs> But isn't it, isn't it a strange thing that we sort of, it's only th- by doing that, that we recognize right. what a sort of distorted world. Mm-hmm. It's vividly in my head that I heard about people who had given up refined sugar for a year and they, they allowed themselves to have one dessert each month. Mm. And that what they, t- what they recounted, there was an article on it. What they recounted was that during the course of 12 months, the, uh, the first 
bit of dessert they're allowed to have at the end of January felt extraordinarily abundant in sugar, mm-hmm. almost to the point that they, they weren't really as enjoy, enjoying it as much as they mm-hmm. wanted. Mm-hmm. By the time they hit December, they were so overwhelmed with the the completely saturated sugar taste that they just couldn't consume yeah, it. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, that's really fascinating that we we re-anchor our perspectives and it reminds us that, you know, the, the way we're living isn't normal. <laughs> and our devices, there seems to be something in that. Mm-hmm. It's just I, I find it really difficult because I do adore my device. Right. You know, if, if there is an addiction, then certainly, you know, at times I like being addicted. Right. I know there's so much benefit to it when you think about just the enormous amount of tools and information at your fingertip and productivity. So I agree with you. There is is that yin and the yang, the good and the bad. So just as long as we just learn to set it down during the day and then at at periodic times and don't let the device kind of run our lives, then it's, it's really helpful, really beneficial. Yeah, I agree. So your work is really around um, creating healthy workplace environments. You you noticed in your work at those um, high tech, fast charge, you know, fast paced, hard charging cultures, a lot of burnout, and that's um, actually now something that's being identified as a as a you know like a chronic stress syndrome. I think is the term that I hear a lot, and so it's really unhealthy, and it can lead to anxiety and depression and a lot of breakdowns, and. Um, for years, it's just been like, oh, well, you know, sucks for you. Go get some help. But now I think organizations are looking and say, wait a minute, this is actually a result of our culture and maybe our, some of our systems. So what, um, you know, what was your experience? Did you experience burnout? Like, how did you get interested in this? And, you know, let's talk about some of those hacks and some of the ways that we can create or leaders can create. A yeah. Well, I think most definitely I was seeing burnout in the people around me and maybe because I was projecting it onto them because I was experiencing <laughs> it myself, right. you know. Um, but we we had one moment about three or four years ago where um, we had just a very high turnover of people quitting their jobs with no job to go to. Mm. And that's one of the surest signs that something's gone wrong. Um, and I think, you know, it was a stark reminder to me that, okay, this is this is something that we probably need to, um, we, we probably need to be honest about the contributing factors. And so, you know, we would hear little things in interviews where people would say, you know, I'm quitting because I just feel overwhelmed. I feel exhausted. I feel I can't switch off at the weekend. Mm -hmm. And yet simultaneously, um, some of my colleagues were routinely emailing all weekend. Mm -hmm. And it became something that, you know, we needed to be candid with each other Mm -hmm. about what was going on because, you know, um, I remember one incident where I said to someone, hey, can we, you know, a senior colleague of mine, hey, can we just go easy on these weekend emails? Mm-hmm. And he replied, you know, interesting, interesting. Let's discuss on Monday. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and um, and because, you know, that the, that's one of the challenges that, you know, it's very easy for us to find ourselves to find ourselves believing that what we're doing is fine, mm-hmm. but what everyone else is doing is wrong. And, mm-hmm. you know, me presented with people quitting with no job to go to, um, that I was, I was really clear. We need to be candid about what's causing this. And one of the things that we observe is that, you know, in us firms who, 
There's an expectation for people to be connected to their devices through work. Mm -hmm. There's an estimation that those people in the US are spending about 70 hours a week connected to work. And the reason why that matters is that when we look into the stress levels of people who work, you know, more than two hours a day outside of outside of the office, their stress levels generally are in the very the very highest quartile of, of stress levels. So, you know, people who are connecting to work 70 hours a week, it might feel to all of us, it might feel like I'm just staying on top of my communication. Mm -hmm. I'm just staying on top of my email. But in fact, what we're normally doing, what we're, we're doing is we're, um, we're adding to our stress levels in a way that is way more than previous generations have ever experienced. Right. Now you're right. I'm cause uh, it goes back to that addiction to always want to see, Hey, did someone respond to my request or, you know, am I missing something? And, if you just set it down and breathe, then usually all that stuff works itself out, you know, and problem solved by the time Monday rolls around. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's, it's one of the it's one of the models of, of when things go wrong that we tend to we tend to catastrophize things. We then we then we, we think that these things are going to be permanent, mm -hmm. um, you know, and in fact, normally in all of these situations, actually a, d a degree of sort of pausing we we remove ourselves from the the personalization we remove ourselves from the permanence of things right. and uh, we can actually get a bit more perspective but it's not so easy is it right because we've trained ourselves relentlessly to do this thing this one way constantly do 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 and then you know the weekend comes around a lot of times my experience is like you're like okay well if not that then what right i, I don't know what else to do and so then people think well i need to get a hobby or i you know it's not so much about replacing one thing for another is it What's your perspective? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do think more than ever before, probably because of sort of the imperatives of housing is more expensive than ever before, and uh, college debts are, are more than ever before. That you know, people really feel that more than fifty years ago, you know, the the, the career, the notion of a career, is an invention of of the last forty years, That's really. Right. Right. And so, you know, more than ever before, we we feel this pressure on us to to succeed, to get on in life, and it's had the consequent effect that we've reduced the amount of time we spend on hobbies, and we reduce the amount of time that we spend on outside activities, mm -hmm. probably to the detriment of us feeling like we've got other interests. I was really taken, you know, I'm always cautious about what Silicon Valley firms say, and I guess, you know. I, I, I'm in the fortunate position that having uh, worked in in a couple of Silicon Valley firms, I'm, I'm sort of able, I've got the luxury of saying that, but I'm always cautious of, of what a Silicon Valley firm say. But I was impressed with the value of Slack, the mm -hmm. the communication yeah. uh, app, because they them, said they've- spoke to them last year. I, I thought it was from okay. right before they went public, yeah. Okay, and they said, our value is do a good day's work and go home. I love that. And I was really taken with that because I thought, okay, they said we would much rather our colleagues have in outside interests. They've got pastimes, they've got hobbies, because it generally means that they end up being a more um, interesting, interesting contributor to our workplace ideas. That's fascinating. The other thing that's kind of going through my head right now is, and this has also been magnified by social media, is this. Western cultures kind of drive, and I think you alluded to this, to always climb, always, you know, compare yourself to the other person and say, well, I'm not content here. Uh, that's the job I want, or that's who I want to be like. And so it pushes people 
often to take on roles that they're not ready for or even right for. And then that leads to a lot of discontentment or anxiety and and even more pressure. You know, one example of the opposite of this, and I thought this was super wise. I have a friend who was a Navy SEAL. His name is Phil, tallest Navy SEAL ever, by the way. He's like six, eight. And, um, and then he got out and became an entrepreneur and a firefighter, right? He was able to do both because as a firefighter, at least in the United States, you know, the full-time places where you get hired, you know, they work like, they sleep at the station for seven or eight days a month. And then you have all this rest of the time off. Right. And, and he's a Harvard MBA, right? This guy's super brilliant. Wow. And so I was, I met with him just last week and I said, Hey, Phil, how's it going? He's like, great. I said, how are you doing at your firehouse? Are you like leading the place yet? Or he goes, no, no, I'm still, you know, firefighter one dash alpha or whatever. I sit in the back of the truck and steer the damn thing. And I'm like, wow. He goes, that's what I like to do. He goes, right. I want to I fight fires. I don't want to be involved in another leadership bureaucratic quagmire. He goes, I've been there and done that. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Harvard MBA, former Navy SEALs sitting in the back of a fire truck, <laughs> fighting <laughs> fires, you know. I like awesome. it though, because awesome. quite often we can end up in a situation where we're, we're promoted and promoted, promoted, and we're promoted out of the things that we adore. That's right. That's my point. Yeah. And then, and then it creates this whole anxiety because you're now out of sync or out of alignment with maybe what your calling was. And, and that's kind of another really good point to dig into. And I'd love to get your perspective on this. Maybe it's one of your hacks too, is like constantly doing shuts us off, constantly doing, craving, striving, you know impressing people shuts us off from our inner voice or that, that maybe spiritual guidance that says, you know what, Mark, take a look over here. Maybe this is what you're supposed to be doing. And this mm. is what I find super valuable, you know, going on these retreats for us because after a few days of everything settling down, you have these not, not just small creative insights about a project, but like major insights about your life. Well, this is it. Someone told me, I mean, to the point of, um, you know, getting an insight just in the shower. Someone told me recently, you know, I get all my best ideas on vacation. Yeah. And, you know, it's precisely the same that if we if we're constantly pedal to the metal, if we're constantly just accelerating and trying to to get every last drop of productivity out of our bodies, then in fact, we, we're not giving ourselves space to breathe and imagine and, and to get these things done. So exactly right, you know, that disengagement, that, that unfocus seems mm. to be as productive as, as being engaged all the time. Yeah, I agree. You talk about three themes of creating a happier work environment, recharge, I think sync, sync up and uh, create a buzz. Talk, tell us about that a little bit more. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the critical thing for me was that I was setting about trying to create a cookbook of how any of us could fix our workplace cultures. And the reason why I started with these personal interventions that I called recharge is because for me, I was surrounded with people who, if we said we're going to fix the culture around here and everyone was working till uh, till 10 p.m. every night and they were exhausted, if I told them that we need to fix the, the culture, then I think, you know, they'd have said... Yeah, <laughs> fix yourself you know, first. <laughs> absolutely. They, they would have said that, you know, this is sort of um, a, a nice first world problem, but it wasn't their, their immediate focus. And so... You know, there's 12 personal interventions there, and and they're just very simple things that any of us can do to um, to make work feel more uh, less exhausting, more agreeable. Suggest. But then, give us a few ideas. Um, I mean, look, you know, I'm a big fan of simple things like turning off 
the notifications on our phone is really helpful. Going for a walking meeting mm-hmm. is one of the most uh, re-energizing things that any of us can do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these these really small, simple things and these 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 10 of these things, um, these small things that any of us could do that make work feel less overwhelming. Give us some sort of, you know, taking a lunch break. Th- these things sort of seem almost uh very routine but if you build a little personal routine which has got these things together then they they seem to be incredibly uh potent but my overall focus was what could we do to improve workplace culture so not our our own personal experience but more in what, what could we do to to improve our team dynamic and that's where i set about uh trying to do those things so so what you discover in the, the, the rest of the book is in the sync and these uh, buzz sections mm-hmm. is what could any of us do to improve the uh, the connection between team members mm-hmm. and and that for me was really fascinating because you start realizing the importance of teams spending time together or teams uh, feeling like they've got a personal connection with each other one of the things that I was really struck by was that you know a lot of people they might work either they might work remotely themselves or a lot of their colleagues work remotely or maybe they go into their workplace two or three times a week and so consequently you know they they don't always feel connected with their the the people they work with mm-hmm. and what really struck me was that those organizations are often the ones where people say we don't feel any team cohesion anymore mm-hmm. we don't feel you know we don't feel like we've got a bond with each other anymore um, and I was really struck with, I spent a lot of time looking at companies where they'd built strong team cohesion, where they'd built uh, stronger sort of workplace cultures. And quite often there was, there was attention given to how people could feel uh, more connected with each other, how they could, how, you know, spending social time with each other, but maybe in work hours. You know, I, I met one company that had introduced um, they had introduced just a, a weekly social meeting at 4.30 every Thursday. That's and, cool. you know, very, very simple thing. They said it sort of fulfilled the role that maybe the pub might, uh, the in British culture, the pub or a bar might have done in previous generations. But mm-hmm. it just was a time that people got together and just, you know, and just connected as human beings. And, and remarkably, it seemed to have a big impact on how people experience their job and, and how happy they felt in their, in their job. Mm, I like that. So that's great for synchronization and getting people aligned. What about um, creating a buzz state? What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, these, there was a really like interesting team s- spirit maybe, or very much. So I think, you know, mm-hmm. there was a really interesting thing for me where one of the, the people that I spent a lot of time exploring his work was a professor from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And this professor at MIT had done some wonderful work, really sort of taking the technology that we all take for granted in our mobile devices now. Um, but he'd used it to see if he could track offices. And so he, he built some the sort of things that you might have witnessed in sort of a sports game. You know, when we watch the players on the field, we, we, we watch where they've gone um, and we observe we use technology to sort of watch what happens. He said, I wonder if I could use that same technology in workplaces. And interestingly, he did it. And he said within um, a short period of time, he could tell these little heat maps that he'd built. He could tell uh, what was a 
creative office and what was an uncreative office, what was a productive office and what was an unproductive office. So really interesting insight from, from this scientist. And, um, and what he discovered was that the most productive environments, the most creative environments were the ones that had a lot of face-to-face conversation. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, from his evidence, from the data that he gathered, it was true. He could see that there were some offices and workplaces. This isn't just uh, offices, but there were some workplaces that had a genuine buzz to them and others that, you know, sort of had an absence of that. And so he was really struck with how he could observe that uh, really, the, you know, he, he could observe that we, we there were certain things that characterized successful workplaces. And so, you know, that is, for me, was like a really interesting pointer. What, what were the things that any of us could do to bring that buzz dynamic to our workplaces? Mm-hmm. And, and what are your assertions there in terms of like the top two or three things? Yeah, um, you know, I mean, sort of, I've mentioned uh, psychological safety and mm-hmm. and you know, organisations that are able to bring that psychological safety to their workplaces seem to be on the way to building that buzz to, to be mm-hmm. to be able to build that effective workplace culture mm-hmm. and to you know to what you say there, um, it, it often proves immensely difficult to achieve this. You know, this is not easy uh, stuff to do, and so yeah. you know. Uh, medical teams, I observed their techniques for doing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've tried to give really clear pointers how any of us can try and bring these things into our working lives. I observed the um, and spoke to the Harvard neurosurgeon. I write about this in my new book and um, observed their what they call their grand rounds, which was like a, a mission debrief, you know, but it was one, one uh, doctor um, and maybe they rotate, they probably do just, you know, picking their kind of worst case from the p- previous week and then just getting it drilled into by the entire team, the good, bad, and the ugly mistakes and all. And it was extraordinary to watch. It was oh, how fascinating. Debrief that, you know, wasn't personal as the whole intent was to improve the entire team's understanding and communication and also trust. And, Huge. and these things genuinely, you'll know well that these things you can get real benefit if there is total trust there. You know, yeah. if anyone feels like they are being persecuted or yeah, singled shut, out or victimized, shuts it, right it shuts it down immediately and, and no one will share misfortune in fact the the woman that uh, did a lot of work on on this was was studying in hospitals a woman called amy edmondson and she discovered that the teams that she'd observed were the best teams um when it came to making drug errors prescri- prescription drug errors um the the best teams no longer seem to be the best teams they seem to be making considerably more errors than everyone else Interesting. and uh, and so she set about trying to understand this because by ed- any other measure these seem to be unequivocally the best teams what she discovered was they weren't making more errors. They were just admitting to making more errors. So mm-hmm. transporting back to your hospital you're describing there, then, you know, the, the teams who have got that trust amongst them, who are not going to be responsible for, um, held responsible for small things that go wrong, then they can immediately frame everything they're doing as a learning experience. That's right. That's right. Um, and, you know, some of the things that I talk about are how framing things as a problem that you're trying to solve together uh, or framing things in, in different ways can actually be, as part of the leader's tool set, they can be very 
instructive for building these cultures that once we're in them feel magical, motivated, energizing. But, you know, sometimes it can feel quite elusive how we can reach that stage. Yeah, it takes a lot of discipline to get there. You know, transforming a culture, as you're aware, is probably harder than creating one from scratch, right? Very much so. The SEALs have the benefit of, and the SEALs and the SEAs have the benefit of these long session programs, and and they select people who are going to be honest and trustworthy or or who've already had to prove that in other domains. And and so you have a lot of support from the, um, the early end, from who you hire, how they're culturized, and then how they're taught to be on the team. And so by the time you get to the high risk environments, you know, pretty much everyone's already been read in and, and, um, trained on the new protocols. I remember Ray Dalio in his book principles, he talks about how to get, you know, a, a culture to have those super honest, uh, heart to heart communications, even when things are going horribly is like an 18 month journey. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit cautious of Ray Dalio's stuff, but I think the, yeah. these, yeah. Um, but you know, the, there is some, there's some, some parallels. Yeah, most definitely. There's definitely some, some brilliant wisdom in there. I'm just sometimes cautious because you do hear cautionary notes about, you know, I'm, I'm just a bit cautious of some of it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and I, my point for bringing it up is just it's hard work. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, you definitely don't just stumble into these things for sure. No, no, but well worth doing. And what I love about your message is, don't we don't have to wait for um, the organization to to build our culture for us. In fact, that's that's a flawed ideal. Uh, the people in the organization build the culture, and so you know if you have an organization that is like, hey, we can improve on our culture then buying the book, eat, sleep, work, repeat, 30 hacks for bringing joy to your job, reading it together as a book club, talking about it at your Thursday afternoon meetup. And boy, you might get like five or 10 ideas that you can just start working on, right? And then you evolve the culture. You know, I think that's a big message for the next, the coming age is like, let's take responsibility ourselves, each one of us through our teams to help evolve, not just our work culture, but family and then, you know, broader culture because, institutionally, there's no single institution that's going to do it. There's no one leader that's going to do it. UN's not going to do it. President Trump or the next president's not going to do it. Right? It's up to us. <laughs> that's my feeling. Anyways. <laughs> well, exactly that. As you know, my feeling was very much that we could all wait for the, the unveiling of the new workplace culture at our work right. and we'd probably be waiting a long time. And, you know, the, the more that we can jump in and take responsibility for these things ourselves, even if we're not the boss, jumping in and right. saying, hey, I, I think we can fix this, then that was my take on it. I love that. Awesome. And so you're, is this book is in the marketplace now? Or That's it- right. It's just, um, okay. it's just coming out now. So um, it's been a fantastic hit in the uk it was the best-selling business book of 2019 so you know thrilled to, to bring it to the u.s updated I'm glad, they, I'm glad they translated it to american for us <laughs> awesome. i've i've taken out some of the parochial <laughs> english references <laughs> awesome eat sleep work repeat 30 hacks for bringing joy to your job that's available where would you like people to learn about it? Amazon or your website or? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, everything is on my website, which is eat, sleep, work, com, And there's links nice. to uh, big retailers and there's links to small retailers there. So you can, you can choose your one. Awesome. 
Bruce, thanks very much. Uh, thanks for doing the work. And I know Thank you're going to you. continue on. And I look forward to uh, tracking that. And if you find yourself in San Diego, California, when you're tired of being wet and cold <laughs> and dark, then <laughs> let's get together. <laughs> Love to do that. Thank you so much. All right, buddy. Great. Appreciate you. Thanks Take very care. much, buddy. All right, folks. That was Bruce Daisley. Check out his um, website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. And the book, and if you're a business leader, this sounds like a real winner, winner. We really, um, culture is best way, you know, evolving culture is best way to really evolve your organization so you can grow and scale and, and have a bigger impact. It's hard to do without all your people fired up and aligned and in sync and buzzing and recharged. So look forward to read that myself. Um, and I hope you do as well. And on one final note, staringdownthewolf.com, some similar uh, messaging, uh, but this is more about how you as a leader can overcome your own fears and biases and shadows so that you can unlock courage, trust, respect, excellence, resiliency, and alignment and grow with your team. So uh, I appreciate your support, as does Bruce. And uh, until next time, stay focused and be unbeatable. Hoo Divine out. Sure you get home, boys. They got your back. The pride of the fleets. The bright swinging frogmen of the U.T.T.